Mediatrix Radio presents Pathways to Rome, a weekly hour-long journey that brings Rome home for you. Father Jeffrey Kirby, along with Gus Kilo and Kathy Kerfoot, take us on an audio tour of the Vatican where every work of art, building, and liturgical event is a unique expression of Christianity. The center of the Catholic faith teaches while it inspires, but there's a lot to learn. So let's join our tour guides for this week's apologetic adventure. Welcome to Pathways to Rome, the show that brings Rome into your living room here in the upstate of South Carolina. We're here today with a very special guest. Of course, we have Father Jeff Kirby on the line with us from Rome. We have Kathy Kerfoot and myself, Gus Killo, but a very special guest today, Father Dwight Longenecker. We're going to be talking about Anglicanism and the recent developments in the church where the Pope has kind of opened it up and made it easier for Anglicans who want to become part of the Catholic faith to come on over and participate in our faith. The reason Father Longenecker is here is because his journey went right through Anglicanism to the Catholic Church. So, Some people would say, Gus, did Father Longenecker go through Anglicanism or did Anglicanism go through him? <laughs> so, what, what is it? You take the Anglican out of the That's board. Right. But anyway, we're, we're thrilled. And uh, what's interesting is that Father Longenecker was ordained three years ago as a convert from Anglicanism. Father, tell us about your ordination with, uh, I believe it was Bishop Baker, right? That's right. I have to explain to uh, Catholic audiences very often about the fact that I'm married with a wife, four kids, four school-age kids. And sometimes I get into a little bit of a jam about that, but I have to say it's okay. The Pope said it's, <laughs> it gave me permission. Uh, I was on the March for Life soon after I was ordained and was hearing confessions, and somebody began talking about their troubles with a teenage daughter or something, and I nearly said, I know exactly how you feel. <laughs> you know? And I said, oh, no, I better not go there. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, what happened is that the Anglican Church has been in crisis for a long time over various issues. And in the late 1970s, uh, a group of Episcopalians, and I should say Episcopalians are Anglicans here in, in the United States. They, they have the name Episcopalians. They were troubled by the ordination of women in the Episcopal Church and also by a new prayer book, which is very liberal in, mm. in, in the mid to the late 1970s. Some of these Anglo-Catholic, that's Catholic-minded Episcopalians, petitioned Rome and said, look, we're married. Could we become Catholics and be ordained as Catholic priests? Now, they did that because there was a precedent in the 1950s some of the Protestant pastors in the Lutheran Church of Sweden had been accepted by, I think it was Pope Pius Twelfth, and they'd been ordained, although they had wives. So this is what made the men in, here in America have confidence that Rome might look at this um, positively. So Rome eventually said yes, and these first few men were ordained under something which is called the pastoral provision. And the pastoral provision is the means that Rome has set up to discern the vocation and also to help these men like myself, former Anglican priests who are married, to be accepted into the Catholic Church. If it all goes well, then the Holy Father grants a dispensation from the vow of celibacy, which allows us to be ordained as, as Catholic priests. Since that time in the 1970s, there's been a gradual trickle of more and more men applying, and the door of the pastoral provision remained open. Then in the early 1990s, when the Church of England, in England, decided to ordain women as well, another whole wave of converts came over. And I was part of that wave because I was living in England at the time. Right. So in the early 1990s, then in England, probably about, I think, 600 or so Anglican priests converted. Probably about 200 of those were married, and they were all ordained as Catholic priests. So this dialogue has been going on for over 40 years now. Uh, that's right, Kathy. It's, it's been going on for a long time. And, of course, it really goes back even further to Cardinal Newman 
and the wave of Anglo-Catholic converts in the end of the, the 19th century in England. Okay. I understand, Father, that you studied at Bob Jones University. How did you end up at Bob Jones? Well, I was brought up in Pennsylvania in a very evangelical, conservative family. My mom and dad and my aunts and uncles all went to Bob Jones. It was kind of like oh. our, our family college. Okay. So I came down here to Greenville to study at Bob Jones. And while I was there, I was an English and a speech major, very interested in English literature. I'd traveled over to Europe a couple times on mission trips and discovered that all my heroes in the literary world were Anglicans. And then someone said, hey, why don't you come with me to this little Anglican church? And here in Greenville, it's the, the little Anglican church down in Buncombe Street, the Red Door. Eventually, I went there and fell in love with the Anglican faith. That's where I was baptized and confirmed at first into the Anglican religion and felt the call to the ministry. And then that led to going over to England to study to be an Anglican priest. Okay. And how long were you in England? I went over and trained for three years as an Anglican priest. And then I met a bishop who was willing to ordain me. And I went and served a, you know, in a church there. Before I knew it, I got married and had a family and spent 25 years of my life there. Wow. Very interesting. Now, Father Longenecker, for some of our listeners, they might be a little confused as to when you speak about being ordained an Anglican priest and then being ordained a Catholic priest. Mm -hmm. Could you maybe address why you had to be ordained a Catholic priest? There's a big controversy about that. Some of the Anglicans would argue quite vehemently that their orders are valid Catholic orders. And this question was actually put to the Vatican back in the end of the 19th century. And Pope Leo XIII actually decided on the matter and said no. Uh, he decided that Anglican orders were null and, and void. In other words, he was basically saying they were not Catholic orders. He wasn't saying they were worthless or that Anglicans are worthless or that Anglican priest's ministry is not Christian or that it's no good or anything like that. He wasn't making value judgments. He was simply making an objective judgment that Anglican orders were not Catholic. Therefore, when an Anglican priest comes into the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church says that we need to be ordained as Catholic priests because whatever we were as Anglican priests, we were not Catholic priests. I think I remember hearing from a Catholic radio show that the rite of ordination was changed about 50 years after King Henry took over the Church of England, that they changed the ordination rite to further distance themselves from the Catholic Church. Yeah, that's the argument which the Vatican used. Okay. Anglicans come back and they give other more arguments, and you know both sides go back and forth. For my part, I was willing to accept the Church's position on it and say, if this is what the Catholic Church says, then I need Certainly. to go Obedience. Yes. <laughs> Since you did have a wife, you did have children, how did that work with your wife? Uh, my wife, Allison, was brought up as an Anglican, and I met her when I was an Anglican priest, and, and we got married. And when I then began making this journey towards the Catholic Church, she was had a lot of mixed emotions, I think, it, it's fair to say. And when I spoke about actually giving up my job and our home and everything else, that was a pretty big crunch for us because I was the Anglican vicar of two beautiful old Mm. Medieval churches I've in England. Yes. I've seen the picture. <laughs> yeah, I've seen a beautiful big old house in the country. And we had a nice life, you know, and, and we were serving God and the church was growing. And so to walk away from all that was a big challenge for her. But she's really a um, feisty and strong-minded <laughs> person. The thing which helped her to see the truth was actually as a wife and a mother and a nurse was the Catholic Church's position, pro-life position. Okay. The Anglicans are kind of fuzzy on, on that. Mm -hmm. And she said, how can you belong to a church that doesn't take a stand on something like this, which is so basic? That sounds very familiar to the Scott and Kimberly Hahn story yes. well, of their conversion. Well, you know, the, the interesting Years thing ago. is that they're, I believe, featured in one of Patrick Madrid's series, Surprise by Truth. And Father Longenecker's story is featured in Surprise by Truth 3, and I highly recommend reading it. All of the Surprise by Truth anecdotes describe various 
Christians, non-Christians who found their way into the Catholic Church. I'm going to jump in here, Gus, and say that I, I went the mall, of course, to buy Pat's book. But, however, <laughs> <laughs> that conversion story, along with two or three other versions, which I've written for This Rock and other journals, is available on my website, which is DwightLongenecker.com. And the articles are, are all archived there, and people can read them for free. So, uh, And I, I certainly want to encourage our listeners to uh, check out Father Longenecker's his website and then certainly his blog very important stuff and, and a lot of things that are pertaining to the subject we're discussing on this show but also just a vast array of various themes and topics uh, within the Christian faith that, that could be very helpful yeah that's so, great Father I'll need to check that out when I get home Father Kirby, you're there in Rome. Explain what exactly that announcement was that had to do with Anglicans and facilitating this this move home to Rome. Oh, well, Gus, these are, are, are certainly good questions, and I'm grateful uh, for today's show that we have Father Longenecker, because I, I can maybe explain some of the objective things, but as we all need to recall that all of these uh, juridical and ecclesial steps and procedures, these are all about people's lives. And they're about their journeys and their encounters with God, you know. And so Father Longenecker's presence reminds us of that. And he can certainly bring in the very human aspect uh, of this and, and that human desire for a credible understanding of the Christian faith and authentic encounter with God, particularly in the sacraments and with the Word of God, the written Word of God, the Word of God passed on by tradition. But basically what happened is October 20th, the press conference was held, and... Cardinal Levada, who's the prefect, it's like the leader, the, the president of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. And a congregation in Rome is similar to a department in the American government. The Pope has a cabinet, which we call a curia, and we also use that term in the diocese. The bishop has a curia. It means his chief advisors. And within the Pope's curia, he has various congregations, which are the highest levels of his uh, advisors, his counselors, and there's a congregation that is particularly charged with watching the teaching and the authentic interpretation of the doctrine of the faith, and that's hence the congregation for the doctrine of the faith. Well, the cardinal who's in charge of that, again, he's called the prefect, he held a press conference along with a representative from the Congregation for Divine Worship, who was the secretary of that congregation as an archbishop. So it was Cardinal Levada and Archbishop de Noya. Incidentally, for our listeners, both of these clergymen are Americans. And they held this press conference to announce that the Holy Father had decided, after various petitions from individuals and groups, to establish what's called a personal ordinary for those Anglicans who now seek full communion in the Catholic Church. And a personal ordinary means that you'll have a bishop but this bishop is not defined by any particular geographical area. So you can imagine for a bishop, normally, for example, in Charleston, in South Carolina, our bishop has a very specific geographical area, the state of South Carolina. His authority as a bishop is within this area, within the priests and the faithful of South Carolina. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Father Kirby, you, you've mentioned the term ordinariate, and I believe it's, uh, I'm wondering if it's uh, interchangeable with uh, personal prelature like Opus Dei or something. What, what do you say, Father Longinick? Uh, again, we're still in, in, in a little bit foggy about all this because we haven't had the Apostolic Constitution um, published yet. But as I understand it, a personal prelature is overseen by one individual person for a, a, this 
particular group of people worldwide, uh, whereas a personal ordinariate is a particular person and broken down into different geographical regions. And the ordinariate is something which is used, for instance, within the oversight for Catholics in the military. Uh-huh. That's called a military ordinariate. So I think they're two different, slightly different um, terms. So one is on a more global level and the other is on a more diocesan level, right? Yes, okay. a more geographically local level. Okay. Yes, well, that, that makes a lot of sense. And certainly I'm sure that the different groups in the world will be very appreciative of the fact that they can still kind of keep a local cultural identity. Father, could you maybe comment on the international response? Well, the international response of Anglicanism is going to be very complex because Anglicanism itself is extremely complex. I I think the best way to break this down is to explain what Rome is actually doing with this personal ordinariate, and that is they are not seeking to convert all Anglicans lock, stock, and barrel. They're basically responding to a small group of Anglicans, lay people, clergy, and bishops, who for a number of years now have been knocking on Rome's door saying, will you please give us a way to be in full communion with the Catholic Church and maintain our Anglican traditions and patrimony? And so the Holy Father is very generously responding to those calls. I mean, let's face it, it would be a heck of a lot easier if they had just said, uh, if the Rome had just said, you know, forget about it, that's too complicated. (laughs) But they're responding very generously in setting this up and the the positive response so far has been from the very people who've knocked on the door in the first place. And that group is called the Traditional Anglican Communion. The Traditional Anglican Communion is a confederation of a number of different schismatic Anglican churches. These are churches and denominations and congregations that have broken away from the established Anglican and Episcopal churches worldwide. They've now formed a confederation globally called the Traditional Anglican Communion, and these are the people who went knocking on Rome's door. And these are the ones who have given the most positive response to the, to the Pope's offer so far. How many people in that number would you say relative to the overall number? Well, numbers vary. Some people are saying as many as half a million, 500,000 people worldwide. But most commentators and observers are aware that this is probably an exaggerated number, And also, it's not necessarily a foregone conclusion, even if there were 500,000, that all 500,000 would suddenly come into the Catholic Church. Because remember, this is a confederation of independent denominations and congregations. Each one of those congregations and denominations will probably have to vote whether they want to take up this offer or not. And I think we're going to find that a certain number fall along the wayside. And that's to be understood, because if they, some of them may be more Catholic in their mindset than others, and so they, they will say sort of, what, well, we don't want to become Catholics, you know, and they'll, they'll probably say no. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, what about as far as clergy members? What kind of numbers from the traditional Anglican communion do you think? Again, those numbers are very difficult to ascertain. Some people are speaking of, you know, several hundred worldwide, which is not really that very many. Others are saying, you know, it's considerably more than that, maybe as many as a thousand. Okay. So, again, we don't know, and the whole situation is very complicated because these individual congregations and denominations, well, to put it honestly, they all have some vested interests. These are men who will be in their ministries. They'll have established a position in their denomination. There'll be, there's a question of property. Who's the property going to belong to? All of these things are going to come up for discussion. A lot of logistics. <laughs> yes. And therefore, when you also throw in the complicating factors of each one of the clergymen, we can't necessarily assume are suitable candidates for the Catholic priesthood, to put it nicely. This hodgepodge of, of different denominations, and I really do not mean to offend anybody here, but some of them are quite legitimate 
their leaders have good, solid theological educations and a good spiritual formation, a good mind and a good administrative network, and, and it's quite legitimate. Others are not really at all. Okay. Um, and so you might find some of their clergy whose education is very spotty indeed. There's also the question of irregular marriages with some of them. And mm. so it's oh, going to yeah. be... It's going to be a difficult knot to untie. Yes. Well, it's, it's, it's got to be done on a case-by-case basis. Exactly. It seems to me. It can't Certainly. just be carte blanche yeah. um, for that. Father, can you explain the geographical differences among Anglicans? Well, now you're opening the can of worms again on, on, <laughs> on the complexity of Anglicanism. Just to put a little bit of a historical summary together, most people know that Anglicanism was founded in England when King Henry VIII wanted a divorce from Catherine of Aragon, and the Pope wouldn't let him, and so he said, right, I'm going to take my ball and go home, <laughs> you know, and I'm going to be the, the, the head of the church in England. Well, that's the schoolboy version of the history, and it's, it's, it's right as far as it goes, but of course it's more complex than that. When you then look at the history of Anglicanism, it becomes even more complex, because what happened was, as the British Empire grew, Wherever the English went, Anglicanism went. They sent out missionaries. They sent missionaries to Africa, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, Central America, South America, the United States. And in various places in the developing world, Anglicanism is now very strong. In fact, someone told me there are more worshipping Nigerian, Mm. worshipping Anglicans in Nigeria than there are in the United States, England, and Canada combined. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. And so you now have Anglicanism as a global phenomenon, but... Each one of those national churches in Nigeria, Zimbabwe, South Africa, Canada, Papua New Guinea, New Zealand, all over the world, each one of them is an autonomous governing structure. They have their own hierarchy, their own bishops, and the only thing which really holds them together in the Anglican communion is a sense of shared history and a a shared liturgy and a, a shared sort of ancestry. That What this means, therefore, is that any kind of large wholesale response to Rome with Anglicanism worldwide simply won't happen. Instead, you may find, however, that particular provinces, national provinces, might actually respond to Rome positively, and they would have almost the freedom to do that. So what we're looking at is a a possible very huge shift, but then other people are saying it's not going to come to much. Mm -hmm. So we'll see. Time will tell. I have a question for both of you fathers, and, and maybe you could each answer it separately. But if Anglican orders aren't real valid orders, then what's what's to stop any married man from saying, well, look, if they're not valid, why can't I become ordained? So my, my question, which is almost like a devil's advocate question, is if an Anglican priest becomes a Catholic, isn't he essentially then a Catholic layman if he doesn't have valid orders? So why should you, Father, have the ability to become a priest, whereas I, who am married with children, I cannot? A thorny question, but I'm going to toss it out to Father Kirby first, then we'll hear from Father Longenecker. Well, that's a, that's a good question, and it certainly shows that you're thinking about what the Holy See is doing, what the Vatican is allowing and it's important for us to ask these questions and to seek to show this consistency, because in the doctrine of the Church, in the theology of the Church, we see this constant emphasis on consistency. And so it's important for us to ask these questions. How does this act by the Holy See and the forthcoming apostolic constitution fit in? How can it be integrated into the life of, of the Church? You know? And so your question stands. And I would say that first, from different angles, first we'd have to say that the ordinary expression of the priesthood in the West is the celibate priesthood. And there are reasons for that, imitation of Christ, a reflection of service to the Church, the eschatological, which is the end of time, showing that none will be given or will be taken in marriage. There are all these theological reasons on why 
the southern priesthood has become the norm, the ordinary expression of the priesthood in the West. And it's important to focus on that word ordinary, because as always in the Church, we know that the grace of God and the workings of the Holy Spirit can never be restricted within the ordinary bounds. Mm -hmm. Those are the ordinary, the normative ways that we know we can have the assurance of faith, but we cannot try to restrict or hold back the Spirit of God. And what we see here is an extraordinary expression of the priesthood in the Latin Rite in the West, and that the Holy Father is seeing the incredible results that are being born by authentic ecumenical dialogue, by people's pursuit for truth with sincere hearts, seeking the face of God, seeking the fullness of the gospel, and have come to this point where they can now say, I seek this fullness. And so the Holy Father, seeing the workings of the Holy Spirit, will now be open to this extraordinary form, uh, expression of the priesthood in the West. So I think the question is almost misplaced in the sense that it's coming from a different angle. It's coming from the sidewalk outside the church that looks and says, well, if this, then why not that? As opposed to it being asked from within the church, within the life of the faith, and being able to look and, and again, seeking that consistency. Well, how does this fit in? I think once you begin to understand the incredible efforts that have been made in ecumenical dialogue over the last 40 years, the fact that the Spirit of God cannot be held nor restricted by the ordinary expression. And thirdly, the fact that we have to trust these shepherds who have been appointed by God in order to seek unity. The Lord's last prayer to each of us before he died was that we would all be one. And what we see here is attentive care on the part of the shepherds of the Church in order to allow that unity in Christ to become a reality one more step, one more step towards that reality. Does that help, Gus? That's fantastic. Uh, but I'm really looking forward to Father Longenecker's answer. <laughs> yeah, I want to hear that one, too. Okay, uh, the question was, if the Anglican priests come into the Catholic Church, they're really Catholic laymen. In fact, from a Catholic point of view, they've always been that. So then why, don't, why can't other Catholic laymen be ordained as priests? Well, remember uh, what I said about the judgment on Anglican orders was that the Catholic Church was not saying that Anglican orders are worthless or stupid or empty, totally worth nothing, and that the Anglican ministry is worth nothing, the Anglican education is worth nothing, the Anglican formation is worth nothing. Actually, on the contrary, picking up Father Kirby's point, this extraordinary recognition is that the Anglicans have always had a privileged or a special place in relationship with the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church has always recognized at least since the mid-19th century, that here is a essentially Protestant church, which in many ways is on a convergent path or seemed to be on a convergent path with Catholicism. Here were Protestant separated brethren who were desperate to have apostolic succession, who were desperate to have veneration of Blessed Virgin Mary and have Catholic practices and Catholic understandings. And so while the Catholic Church pronounced Anglican orders null and utterly void, at the same time, on the other hand, they were always saying, however, there's a special patrimony in the Anglican Church. There's a special understanding of orders. Their understanding of ordination and ministry and sacraments and all of this is more Catholic than other Protestants, and that's why they're given this special position. Okay. So and also, excuse me, also why, although technically when I converted to the Catholic faith, I was a Catholic layman, and I was, 
I think it's, the best explanation would be that Rome would say, yes, but he's a special kind of Catholic layman. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I like the term extraordinary. That's a wonderful way of expressing it. Ordinary and extraordinary, uh, Father Kirby put it, kind of reminds me of the two expressions of the liturgy. Well, we're coming up at the end of this segment, and please stay with us. And when we come back, we'll be talking about further developments with the Anglican Communion. You're listening to Pathways to Rome, starring Father Jeffrey Kirby, along with Kathy Kerfoot and Gus Killo. Pathways to Rome is a Mediatrix radio production and can be heard weekly at this time. If you would like to listen to this show again or previous broadcast of Pathways to Rome, visit our website, www.catholicradionsc.com. That's catholicradioinsc.com. Pathways to Rome was made possible by donations from Dr. Larry and Iris Minetti, Jim and Jan Carino, Donald and Marilyn Reichert, an anonymous sponsor of Catholic Radio, and contributions from Mediatrix Radio listeners. To learn more about Pathways to Rome or to listen to this or other episodes, Mediatrix Radio's website is www.catholicradioinsc.com. Put the power of video to work for you. Whether it's a short marketing presentation or an hour-long training video, turn to the Emmy Award-winning experts at Extreme Vision Studios. Present your message clearly and concisely. Video allows you to produce your image and gives you a professional look that shines. Call Extreme Vision Studios today for a free consultation. The number is 864-590-9970. That number again is 864-590-9970. Extreme Vision Studios, proud sponsor of South Carolina Catholic Radio. Polydex Screen Corporation, a proud sponsor of Catholic Radio, was founded in Spartanburg in 1978 to manufacture and market modular synthetic screen media in North America, serving the gold, copper, phosphate, and aggregate industries. Polydex strives to honor God in all they do. Their phone number is 864-579-4594. They're also on the web at www.polydexscreen.com. St. Anthony's Catholic Store, a proud sponsor of Catholic Radio, offers books on apologetics, spirituality, theology, and church history to assist adults and children in their faith formation. They also provide sacred vessels, vestments, and hand-carved statuary to parishes and maintain an inventory of baptismal, communion, confirmation, and wedding gifts. For more information about this family-owned business located at 443C Congaree Road near Haywood Mall, John or Judy can be reached at 864-288-0335. Thomas McAfee Funeral Home, a proud sponsor of Catholic Radio, has been serving the community since 1913. Offering personalized funeral and cremation services, they're committed to serving you and your family with dignity and respect. This family-owned business can be reached at their downtown chapel at 232-6733, or their Northwest Chapel at 294-6415, and they're on the web at www.thomasmcafee.com. AKJ Consulting, a proud sponsor of Catholic Radio, in cooperation with New Way Properties, utilizes years of experience to assist people in finding and acquiring affordable housing in the upstate. They also have a program to assist those in danger of going into foreclosure. For more information, David Case can be reached at 864-430-4877. That's 864-430-4877. 
There's a new way to get rid of an old car, truck, or gas guzzler. No matter what condition it is in, Catholic Charities will pick it up at home, office, or repair shop and handle all of the paperwork. Catholic Charities is a 501c3 not-for-profit entity associated with the Diocese of Charleston. For more information, Catholic Charities can be reached at 877-885-4483. That's 877-885-GIVE. Or reach them on the web at www.supportcatholiccharities.org. Priest for Life organizes a monthly rosary led by a priest or deacon of the Diocese of Charleston every third Saturday in each month. Members from local parishes gather to pray the rosary from 8 to 9 a.m. at the West Ashley Abortion Facility located at 1312 Ashley River Road. That's at the corner of Highway 61 and Fusler in Charleston. For further information, Stephen Boyle can be reached at 843-763-0681. In these challenging economic times, our taxes are probably going up. In Matthew 22, Jesus says to pay to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. So is it enough to be resigned and pay our taxes while giving our hearts to God? The real question is, how can we give to Caesar in such a way that transforms society for the good of the kingdom? What can we do with our resources and the taxes we pay to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and serve the least of our brothers that Jesus talks about in Matthew 25? Since after all, it's not our money. I'm Joe Galloway. Pathways to Rome was made possible by donations from Dr. Larry and Iris Minetti, Jim and Jan Carino, Donald and Marilyn Reichert, an anonymous sponsor of Catholic Radio, and contributions from Mediatrics Radio listeners. To learn more about Pathways to Rome or to listen to this or other episodes, Mediatrics Radio's website is www.catholicradioinsc.com. And now we return to Pathways to Rome, starring Father Jeffrey Kirby with Kathy Kerfoot and Gus Killo. Welcome back to the second half of our show, Pathways to Rome. In the first segment, we ended by discussing the great similarity of spirituality and theology between the Catholic Church and the Anglican Church, at least certain groups of the Anglican Church. So I'd like to begin this segment by asking you, Father Longenecker, if you could tell us about the different aspects or the expressions of Anglicanism. Well, Anglicanism was born in the struggles of the early 16th century when the Protestant Reformation was going on. And so while all of this drama about Henry VIII and his marriages was going on, at the same time there was a very strong drama going on for the soul of, of Europe between Protestantism and Catholicism. And so this same struggle, this tug of war between the two came to England. And it's gone back and forth like a pendulum for the last 400 years or so. And even now today, you'll find Anglicans who define the Anglican Church as a Protestant church, as a a church of the Reformation. Others who say, no, it's always been a Catholic church. The Reformation was simply a matter of correcting a few details. Uh, And it's continued to be a Catholic church and never stopped being a Catholic church. And so these two strands have been in opposition all the time and still are. And the amazing thing we're looking back on my time as an Anglican priest was how we seemed to be able to overlook and paper over the cracks. Uh, I would be in my parish, for instance, as a fairly high Catholic-minded Anglican, 
But the guy in the next parish would be almost like a Presbyterian or a Baptist, mm -hmm. not only in his the way he worshipped, but in his beliefs too. Certainly. But we both were ordained by the same bishop. So there was no consistency of theology. Now, the third strand within all of this is what might be called the liberal strand. And this also is just as historic and goes back 400 years. This is the strand which has always seen the Anglican Church as a state church and has always adapted and fit itself according to the uh, philosophy of the time. So in the time of Henry VIII and Elizabeth I, the liberals were the ones who were always adapting the church to what the king wanted or what the, the queen wanted. Okay. Uh, later on, when, for instance, in the 1700s, when a lot of Europeans were Freemasons and Deists and so forth, a lot of the Anglican clergy liberals at that stage were, guess what? Freemasons and Deists. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, the agenda of the society and the establishment is, as we know, secular humanism, feminism, homosexualism, sexual license, all of these things. And so, surprise, surprise, the liberal stream in the Anglican Church are now going along with the secular society there. So you have the three streams of the, the evangelicals or the Protestants, uh, the Anglo-Catholics uh, and the liberals. And boy, I can tell you, they have some real, some real battles between them. So when I was talking about the complexity of Anglicanism, I talked about the breakaway churches and the different provinces around the world which are independent. Now throw this into the mix, that there are these three strands which exist not just in England, mm -hmm. but across the globe. Okay. It gets real compl complicated. Father, uh, is the Queen of England still considered the head of the Anglican Church? The Queen is, yes. And the Queen technically appoints the bishops in the Anglican Church. Ah. But she does so through a structure in which the her prime minister's office makes the appointments based on advice and consultation with high-level people in the Church of England. Going back a little bit to what you said about the vast difference in the Anglican communion, all the similarities with the Catholic Church, but then I would find things that said, but they adhere to sola fide and, and sola scriptura, which are hugely Protestant concepts. Right. So, Father, in describing the different strands of Anglicanism, some of our listeners will be listening to you and, and saying, but you know, when I look at the Catholic Church, I, I see just as many strands in the Catholic Church. Uh -huh. They might say, I see the liberals, the conservatives, the traditionalists. How would you explain to our listeners the difference of what they think they see in the Catholic Church and what is existing in the Anglican Communion? Well, the best way I can explain that is to is to go back to what my mom used to say when she would visit me uh, as an Anglican priest. She's, she belongs to a Presbyterian church, and she'd say, now, Dwight, she'd say, Tell me, what does the Anglican Church teach about, I don't know, infant baptism or something? And um, I would have to say, Mom, I can't really say. I don't know what the Anglican Church teaches on that. I can tell you what I believe. But in fact, wow. apart from the 39 Articles, which is a, a historic document from the Reformation, which is a kind of a statement of belief of Anglicanism, there is no set catechism. There is no set belief. There's no magisterium. There's no... Nothing written down where you can define these things. Whereas in the Catholic Church, although we have many different strands of worship and many different strands of beliefs and, and we fight amongst ourselves, at the end of the day, you can walk over to the shelf and say, you know, here's the catechism. Let's look it up. And that's why there's chaos in the Anglican communion right, right. now. Right. Father Longenecker, in your conversion story, what were some of the main aspects that led you home to Rome? Well, you know, my own journey to the Catholic Church actually took 20 years. And it began here in Greenville, where I met a, a very devout Catholic woman, a laywoman. She was a Benedictine oblate. She was very faithful, very loving, and very simple in her faith. But she, her faith was very alive, and it really influenced me. 
You combine that with the spirituality of the Catholic Church and reading the theology and the history of the Church and living in Europe and exploring that in more depth. All of these things contributed. But it all came to a a kind of climax when the Anglican Church was debating women's ordination. Now, I'm actually a very, I think, open-minded person. One of my mottos is a person is most often right in what he affirms and wrong in what he denies. I always try to affirm what's good, not deny things, because I think that's the way forward. So I was confronted with women's ordination, and my my instincts are conservative, I have to admit, and so my instincts were to be opposed. But I said, no, I'm really going to listen to both sides. And I listened to the proponents of women's ordination, and guess what? They actually had some pretty good arguments from Scripture, from church tradition, from the world we live in today. And some of those arguments were practical, some theological, some psychological. And they also wheeled out all their experts. And they had psychologists and theologians and uh, scriptural scholars and all the rest and bishops and whatever in their camp. And then I would look at them and say, but you know, they're also actually good people, good Christian people. They're prayerful. They, They really, really believe that the Holy Spirit is leading the church in this direction. They're passionate about it. They're willing to make sacrifices. And then I would go and listen to the people who were opposed to women's ordination. And guess what? They had some really good arguments. Yes. They had very good arguments. They wheeled out all their experts, the scripture scholars, the theologians, the linguistic experts, the church historians, the liturgists, the psychologists, the sociologists. They had all their experts, too. And guess what? They, too, were good, prayerful, sincere, passionate people who were just as convinced that the Holy Spirit was not leading the church to make this innovation. So so, so what was it that did it for you? <laughs> well, that's, You see, I then saw this, and I said, you know, it's not clear-cut. Honestly, I, I really can see some good arguments in many ways for women women priests. And, so, and then I saw some for not. Well, that really brought me back to say, well, how do we make this decision? Mm-hmm. You right. need some where authority. Is, where is the authority? Yeah. There must be something bigger than England, bigger than the Anglican Church, bigger than the Scriptures, mm-hmm. bigger than all the experts they wheeled out, bigger and older and wiser and with a larger perspective. And that, of course, led me to the Catholic Church and began to examine the authority claims of the Catholic Church. Okay. Father, Very interesting. The title of your blog is uh, Standing on My Head. Can you tell us what that refers to? Yeah. Right at the beginning of G.K. Chesterton's book on St. Francis, he says sometimes to really see the world clearly, you have to be able to stand on your head. And he goes on in, in his usual way with a couple of pages about how Francis stood the whole world on its head. In the blog, I'm always trying to, in lots of different ways, challenge the, the perceived wisdom in the world and the way the mainstream media looks at things and the way we look at things and, and trying to challenge those basic assumptions. And so Standing on My Head is a good a good title. It's mm-hmm. catchy. You can uh, find Father Longenecker's uh, blog. Uh, the easiest way to get there would be just to go to Dwight Longenecker, L-O-N-G-E-N-E-C-K-E-R.com. And uh, that'll take you to Standing on My Head, or you can actually just Google it and find Standing on My Head. It's a wonderful blog. And if you just tuned in, we are in the studio right now with Father Longenecker, a former Anglican priest. We also have Father Jeff Kirby out in Rome and Kathy Kerfoot, myself, Gus Killo. We've been talking about the whole issue of Anglicans and Anglicans coming back to the Catholic Church and the recent announcement by the Pope. And now, Father, do you have any things that you would like to ask us? Yeah, well, I'd like to ask Father Kirby a question, and that is the news from the Pope October 20th on giving a warm welcome to Anglicans worldwide uh, has made a lot of news and has prompted a lot of responses and, and mixed emotions in my heart. What I'm desperate to know is what's going on in Rome? Is anybody talking about it, or are they really just concerned with finding a good restaurant? I mean, <laughs> what's what's going on over there? 
Well, yeah, it's always both and in the Catholic Church, isn't it? You know, so they're both uh, curious about what's going on with the Anglican Communion and looking for a good restaurant. <laughs> okay, <you know? laughs> but um, but actually, a lot of people are talking. Uh, officials in the Roman Curia, uh, theologians, people who just are living here, who are studying theology or philosophy or church history, and, and there is a, a, a buzz in the city, uh, which is unique. Uh, normally, you have pockets. But this really seems to to have captivated the minds, the theological minds of of many people. Interestingly, the Holy See, the Vatican, the, the Holy Father, his chief advisors, and so on, they're trying actually to keep this in a fairly ordered way. I think the fact that the press office of the Holy See had to come out and actually clarify rumors and actually name a reporter which is unheard of, that the Holy See Press Office would go to that length. Mm -hmm. But they are so diligent right now that bad reports or rumors or mis-theological applications do uh -huh. not rule the day. So from the Curia and from the Pope and his advisors, we see actually a kind of tempering, an attempt to temper this buzz. But around the city, it's all over the place. In fact, People are almost making these outlandish statements of the English Reformation is over, and mm -hmm. they're coming home. And of course, fellow Longnecker, you, you know that that is a hyperbole. <laughs> yes. But there is a great hope in statements like that, and I think that's unique for the city of Rome. So you think, Father, that the buzz is, is a lot of excitement, but then tempered with that, we need to tread very slowly. Absolutely, and, and I think, you know, always the shepherds are, are keeping our zeal tempered, and I think there is a zeal, and, and I think part of the zeal, obviously we realize that the English Reformation is not coming to an end, but what we are seeing is genuine expressions of hope, mm -hmm. a hope that we haven't seen in a very long time, yeah. in a lot of theological minds, a lot of people's hearts. I think most Christians tend to approach the whole realm of ecumenism, as just an opportunity to have nice conversations or do social work. And the idea that this could actually be a dialogue that eventually actually leads to full Christian unity is an ideal, an, a, a vision, a hope that many Christians have given up on, mm -hmm. even in church leadership. And of course, our Lord's last prayer was that we be one. Correct. And so I think this action has just spurred up has fanned into flame on that hope that we could all be one again. And this is just one step in that direction. But so, I think the reason for the buzz is the intrigue and the hope. So even though there's a long road to travel, do you see, do you see great numbers coming in? Or? Father Longnecker mentioned the traditional Anglican Communion, and, and I think that's probably the, the greatest group in and I think Father Longnecker also said that there are debates on numbers. Some are saying as much as 500,000 uh, who may seek entrance into full communion with the Catholic Church. For myself, I just keep hearing numbers, and it seems like the numbers go up every day. <laughs> on the other hand, we have to be realistic. The traditional Anglican communion in England are the first to make a positive response to the, the Holy Father's offer. And this was in the news yesterday that the traditional Anglican communion in England said yes, we want to take advantage of it. Now, I, I then went to their website. It's a very homemade-looking website, mm -hmm. I know, and I know thou shalt not judge thy neighbor by his website. <laughs> but um, 
It was indeed a very home, homemade-looking website, and their their congregations are maybe twenty congregations in all of England, and some of the congregations have only like a reference of a person's name with not even an address or where they're meeting or if they're worshiping. Other congregations are meeting in borrowed buildings. I was disappointed to find that one was meeting in a Masonic hall. Obviously, they're not Masons, but still, the traditional Anglican communion in England, therefore, the point I'm making, is a very small startup church. <laughs> okay. So in the midst of the euphoria, we have to also be very realistic and say these, at least to start with, are going to be very small numbers of small congregations with their pastors uh, making this gradual journey. Let me bring up this question again about the married priesthood. Right now, there's this uh, provision uh, out there. Do you think that's going to go on uh, indefinitely, or what are your thoughts on that? Yes, there's been a lot of debate about the nature of this new setup. What the Vatican is doing is setting up a structure which will be a little bit like the Eastern Rite churches, where there will be a separate hierarchy, and there will be a separate liturgy, and independent congregations, and they will have their own sort of church within the church in a way. One of the big questions is, within that little church within a church, will married men be able to be ordained? Not just will married former Anglicans be priests be ordained. In other words, will it be like the Anglican church where married men may be ordained and even in the Anglican church where priests may marry? Ah, right. That, okay, that now I that's, thought was interesting. Okay, yeah. there's, there's different distinctions there. The Eastern tradition is that married men may be ordained, but priests may not marry. If you're still with me. I got got you. But in the Anglican Church, both married men may be ordained and priests may marry. So priests can date is what you're saying. Yeah, I I got married when I was an Anglican priest. I was already ordained. My wedding pictures have me in a dog collar, you know. But that's that discipline. And so the question is, is this going to be the discipline in in this new Anglican uh, ordinariate? There seems to be a little bit of ambiguity still. Hmm. But I think it's pretty safe to say that the present provision for married former Anglican priests and maybe former seminarians who are married to be ordained as Catholic priests will remain, but that future men coming up through the Anglican congregations will need to, to observe the discipline of celibacy. For lawmaker, I'm curious in our discussion on priestly celibacy how you might see this uh, personal ordinariate, how it might affect celibacy, the understanding of celibacy in the Church, and whether the this decision of the Pope to allow for this personal ordinary is going to affect either positively or negatively the ecumenical dialogue that has been happening for the last four decades. First of all, let me discuss the question of whether this having more married a priest is going to affect the discipline of celibacy. On the one hand, no, it's not. And I think that the decision for in the apostolic constitution for the Anglican ordinariate I believe it's going to make clear that future generations of Anglicans within the ordinariate, if they feel a call to the priesthood, will have to take on, adopt the discipline of celibacy. So I think on paper, in theory, it's not going to affect things. I want no one to misunderstand me. I am not at all pushing for married clergy or for a change in the church's discipline. That's simply not my position to do, and it would be totally wrong for me to, to suggest such a thing, because apart from anything else, I'm always very sensitive and aware of the sacrifices my, my celibate priest brothers have made and the graciousness with which they have accepted me into the presbyterate, it would be insulting and terrible of me to suggest that the discipline has changed or, or in any way. So I'm not suggesting that at all. However, I do think that should there be a larger number of married Catholic priests, and if 
the majority of them actually have good marriages and it works well, then in practical terms, it's going to answer a lot of the question, the practical questions which people have about clerical celibacy. What I mean to say is that people are going to draw conclusions. They're going to say, you know, over there we've got Father Jack with his wife and kids. It's working okay. We've all dug a little bit deeper in the parish. We've been able to support him. And the financial problem isn't there that we thought was there. And it's working fine. And so that kind of gentle, gradual, practical pressure will probably be felt in the church. And we're going to have to deal with that and and realize that that's going to happen. On the other hand, we may find Father Harry has got a wife who is an absolute terror and six kids who are terrible and they're making an awful lot of demands and they get divorced or something terrible, you know, and and it could be a disaster. So the practical side is going to go both ways. And that leads us to the question of Anglican bishops because they cannot be married as bishops in the Catholic Church. That's right. Any of the Anglican bishops who come over will have to will be married priests. They will correct? be married priests if they're accepted for ordination. Okay. Yes, but they will not be bishops. Okay. However, this is why the, the Vatican is calling it an ordinariate and that the person in charge of this new hierarchy will be called an ordinary, not a bishop. That's to allow former Anglican priest to be appointed as one of the ordinaries or to allow a married former Anglican bishop to be appo- who's now a Catholic priest to be appointed as an ordinary. Okay. If you're with me. Yeah, that makes sense. And Father Kirby had also mentioned the question of future ecumenism. Where do you see that going? Well, it's very interesting. I've actually been in touch with one of our bishops who asked me about some of these questions already, and he revealed to me that he has already been receiving letters from Presbyterians, Baptists, Assembly of God, Pentecostals, Mm -hmm. saying, does this change the situation for us? Well, that's really interesting to me, because it seems to me that not just the Anglicans are listening but that this may actually show a way forward for a whole range of ecumenical gestures. A friend of mine who's a former Lutheran pastor who's now a Catholic, his immediate response was, why do the Anglicans get special treatment? (laughs) You know, he says, I was a high church Lutheran. We had Eucharist and Eucharistic adoration and mass every week and the Blessed Virgin Mary and all the rest. And we're just as high church as those high church Anglicans were. So All of these things you see are interesting elements to it. What I personally hope is that these new Anglican ordinariates are going to be men who are experienced not only in Anglicanism, but they're going to have to know Episcopalianism, and I hope that they're going to be knowledgeable about the vastly complex world of of Protestantism Mm -hmm. with its, what, 60,000 different denominations or something. Mm -hmm. In other words, I hope this ordinariate will be seen not just as a man who can be an advocate and be a pastor to the Anglicans and Episcopalians who come in, but he might also quietly be understood to be a man who will be an advocate, a knowledgeable advocate uh, and pastor to Lutherans and Presbyterians and Methodists and a whole range of other clergy and lay people who wish to come home to Rome. Now, that I find that very exciting because here's a man who could stand in the breach He could understand the Catholic Church after much experience. He could understand the way the Catholic Church works. He could talk to the bishops and the the hierarchy in the Catholic Church to explain about our Protestant brethren, because a lot of them don't know very much about it. Mm -hmm. And he could very well be the sort of person who helps these a lot of our our separated brethren find a way into the church and also find a way to serve the church, because, you know, we could use a lot of their gifts and a lot of their abilities. Absolutely. Certainly. Well, Father, thank you for all of your insights. Your presence on the show today certainly helps us to understand exactly how the Holy Father and, and Rome is, is approaching the Anglican Communion with 
uh, this special uh, dispensation, this special openness. And uh, I was curious if maybe you'd like to just kind of give some closing comments and then sure. maybe lead us in prayer give you a blessing. Sure. I, I think the thing that I would say in conclusion is that church history shows over the last 50 or 100 years at least that where the Anglicans go, the rest of Protestantism follows. And this is true in a negative and a positive way. And so as Anglicanism, part of it diverged into radical liberalism, so did some other parts of Protestantism. But also where Anglicanism got closer to Rome and closer to Catholicism, so have very many other areas of Protestantism. So I think this is is something which is really hopeful for the future. And I would just make a plea right now to any of our separated brethren who are listening and saying, hey, look, the Catholic Church has done something astounding here. Opened the doors and made a courageous gesture towards unity. Stop once more. Put your preconceptions about the Catholic faith on one side. Stop and look again and say, well, maybe there's something to this. I'm going to come at this whole Catholic thing with a totally fresh mind if I can and ask God for the guidance and the leading which he's promised through his Holy Spirit. And in saying that, perhaps we can close with a prayer along those lines. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Heavenly Father, you promise your Holy Spirit to all of your disciples to lead us into the fullness of truth, to never leave us or forsake us. We pray that that Holy Spirit will be with us now, that your promise will be fulfilled right now for us here and for all who are listening. And this we ask in the name of Jesus, the Lord. And so I say to you, the Lord be with you. And also with you. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to Pathways to Rome, starring Father Jeffrey Kirby, along with Kathy Kerfoot and Gus Killo. Pathways to Rome is a Mediatrics Radio production and can be heard weekly at this time. For more information about this show, or if you would like to listen to previous broadcasts, visit our website, www.catholicradionsc.com. That's catholicradioinsc.com. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Pathways to Rome was made possible by donations from Dr. Larry and Iris Minetti, Jim and Jan Carino, Donald and Marilyn Reichert, an anonymous sponsor of Catholic Radio, and contributions from Mediatrics Radio listeners. To learn more about Pathways to Rome or to listen to this or other episodes, Mediatrics Radio's website is www.catholicradioinsc.com. The Catholic Shop, a proud sponsor of Catholic Radio, has baptismal, communion, confirmation, and wedding gifts, and offers books on apologetics, spirituality, theology, and church history to assist adults and children in their faith formation. They also provide sacred vessels, vestments, and Italian hand-carved statuary to parishes. For more information about this family-owned business, located at 180 North Dean Street, Suite 103 in downtown Spartanburg, John or Judy can be reached at 864-585-2667. Perpetual Novena in honor of Our Lady of Guadalupe. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, O Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, kindle us in the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and we shall be created. And you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who did instruct the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant us in the same Spirit to be truly wise and ever to rejoice in his consolation 
through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. O Mary, conceived without sin, pray, pray for us who have recourse to you. The Memorare. Remember, O most compassionate Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to your protection, implored your assistance, or sought your intercession was left unaided. Inspired with this confidence, we fly unto you, O Virgin of Virgins, our Mother. To you we come, before you we kneel, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not our petitions, but in your clemency, hear and answer them. Amen. Prayer to Our Lady of Guadalupe. O Virgin Immaculate, Mother of the true God and Mother of the Church, you who manifest such kindness and compassion to all who seek your protection, hear the prayer that we pour out to you with childlike confidence. Present it to your Son, Jesus, our sole Redeemer, Mother of Mercy, who have taught us hidden and silent sacrifice, and who come to meet us, sinners that we are. On this day we consecrate to you our entire being and love, our life, our labor, our joys, illnesses, and pain. We wish to be yours totally and to walk with you in the way of complete fidelity to Jesus Christ and his church. Do not release us from your loving hand. Our Lady of Guadalupe, Mother of the Americas, pray for us. Amen. Polydex Green Corporation, a proud sponsor of Catholic Radio, was founded in Spartanburg in 1978 to manufacture and market modular synthetic screen media in North America, serving the gold, copper, phosphate, and aggregate industries. Polydex strives to honor God in all they do. Their phone number is 864-579-4594. They're also on the web at www.polydexscreen.com. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, And she conceived of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to thy word. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech thee, O Lord, thy grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ thy Son was made known by the message of an angel, made by his passion and cross, be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. 
Hello, I'm Father Jeff Kirby. Thank you for listening to WCKI 1300 AM Greer and to WQIC 810 AM St. George, Charleston. Hello, my name is Father Owen Kearns. I'm from the National Catholic Register. And whenever I'm down in this area of the South, I just love listening to Catholic Radio on WCKI 1300 AM.